The battle of Britain is about to begin. Welcome back to the Leap Suit Podcast. Tonight we're talking history again, and I'm joined by Mike Peters, co-author of the book Bomb Group, which chronicles the 381st Bomb Group's World War II service flying from Ridgewell Air Base in the UK. Welcome to the Lead Pursuit Podcast, Mike. Hi, Duke. Uh, it's good to be here. I'm really looking forward to talking about the 381st and the, the, the Mighty Eighth in World War II. Absolutely. Well, we're also joined by a limited crew from the Lead Pursuit. Steve, you're our only guy that decided to jump onto the podcast tonight. How are you doing? I'm good. I'm pretty sure I got voted on because I am the resident non-expert about history. So this was the ploy to get me schooled up a little bit, right? <laughs> exactly. This this was my attempt to educate you by forcing you to read. But, uh, you know, we've we talked a little bit before the uh, podcast started. Uh, the good thing about Bomb Group is it does not read like a dusty history book. It is not facts and figures. Sure, sure, there's some numbers in there, but it, it reads much more with the personal accounts and the discussions of everybody as members of the 381st. Now, Mike, when you wrote the book, you obviously had a lot of sources out there. You had official sources, but you really concentrated on a couple of voices that kind of carried the book from start to finish. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Yeah, it's really um, down to my co-author and I, Paul Paul Bingley and and I, and we we really think that the word story is involved in, in history. It's a history. So, and the best way to get those facts across is in a, is in a chronological narrative that that tells a story and 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 so many people have written as you say quite dry accounts or very highly personalized one-man accounts seen from the cockpit or the turret and paul and i um when we met and we started to talk about this book um i'd I'd we've both written work different works before and mine i've written two books about the glider pirate regiment and that was done in that sort of format as a story punctuated by the data and intermissions and all the factual explanations but really you want you want a, a really digestible thread and we were blessed when we did bomb group with two very good accounts written about the 381st um one less known is by uh james good brown who was the chaplain of the bomb group but it's it's an absolute tome of work there's lots of it and in, in great detail and and you've not unique perspective of i say he's a, he's a non-combatant but he's certainly on our side you know he's he's, he's a chaplain he's fighting a good fight and he's He's, he thinks we're a force for good, and, and it's, it's a just cause. So, uh, and then John Comer, who wrote Combat Crew, which is what started both Paul and I off on the tra- on this trail. And if you get a chance and you want to read one personal account about flying in the Mighty Eighth on a fortress, then John Comer's is, to use that technical phrase, unputdownable. You know, you 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 pick it up, and it's like, oh my God. He gets off the truck at Ridgewell and off he goes, you know, and, and he's he's an engineer, he's a mid-upper gunner on a B-17 and he's going through that classic, I've got to get through my mission count and get to the end. But the, the way he observes it and talks about it and the detail he gives about life as a mid-upper turret 
gunner engineer on, on a B-17 is, is really insightful. And if you add that to uh, Good Brown and his, his accounts of the guys playing baseball, the accidents that happen, the weather, just the, the frame of mind, the mood, you really sort of feel the mud and the cold of being on Ridgewell in Essex somewhere in England in, in the winter or that feeling of getting back to, to UK and being able to go to the pub in Cambridge or Ipswich or somewhere like that <laughs> on a summer's night. You know, or that moment when the, the guys land and they're, on, they're parked on the dispersal and they can go to the ops room and debrief and be interrogated or they can hop over the fence and go to the local pub first yeah. before they go yeah, back and be debriefed. Yeah, yeah, let me think about that when I've just survived the daylight raid over occupied Europe or even Germany. So there's, well, there's a wealth of material. Yeah, the, the differences in the accounts that as you weave them all together, because you obviously have the, the fatalistic view of the air crew just trying to make it 25 missions and, and go through there. But Brown's continual presence in the story from the very beginning to the very end, through all the years there in England, through four or more commanding officers and, and two plus years, is fascinating because there is a sense of optimism at times. There's also a sense of just crushing uh, fear and defeat and trying to get through all the horrible losses and all the difficult times and and the non-combat mishaps and the the terrible things that happened there the as we talk about the people that were you know on mission 24 or had come back for a second tour and were on mission 49 of 50 uh, and and how brown talks about those things yet he also talks about how how to bring up the the morale of the men and how to to get the the air crews back into the fight uh, and and how to how to get them motivated to knowing the odds were stacked against them but to go back and to to give it their their utmost and to go fly another mission back in country yeah he, he's almost like the pulse of the bomb the bomb group and you know it's, it's absolutely a few, there's Very a few bad. interesting things he does so when he first when they first start he notices that the ground crew aren't there to welcome the aircraft back they're not sweating out the mission like he does and the officers do so he he suggests that the ground crew should be there when the crews come back you know and also he he's there when wounded and dead are being carried out of the aircraft and, and looks after all of that and controls that uh, as a real prominent part he's remarkable and he's the guys burying guys who do come back in the aircraft dead he he takes them off to brookwood and maddingly and places like that and he he carries out the services he pays them so he he's seeing the complete 360 degree of what he even flies on a mission he persuades the co to let him fly on a mission you know so he does see it all and um and he's just got this forensic detail about the humanity of it about when guys don't come back and there's no one to play in the baseball team because there's a baseball right. diamond at Ridgewell, you know. And, there and has they to be play an American base. Yeah. yeah. How, <laughs> how would you have an American base without a baseball diamond? <laughs> and when, if you were to walk there with Paul or I, we'd show you where it is. It's You can still yeah. make out where it was. So, oh, that's fascinating. You know, and, and, and Good Brown's building in his chapel, which is also the cinema, is, it's, it's like that scene out of 12 o'clock high where the old guy goes back to the deserted airfield at the start. It's there. The concrete's all there. Good Brown's office is there. The holes in the wall where the cinema projector used to point through, you can still see it. And Ridgewell is not unique like that. But, um, but you know, the museum there is, is fantastic. And we often get relatives from of the veterans who come back and we host them there and, and we walk walk the airfield. And it, it, it is like 12 o'clock high. You can just – you can – feel it and if you yeah. sometimes you can stand there you can think i can imagine those engines starting up and the aircraft taxiing out ready to go all the crew chiefs swarming over them to to to, to get the aircraft ready to go the, the fuel the bombs the the guns all, all that being done the servicing of the engines you can you can smell it it's, it's amazing 
I think that's one of the things that Americans have such a, a hard time just imagining is the sheer volume of aircraft and people and effort that went into that phase of the war. Uh, and, and I know you allude to it talking about just the hundreds of air bases that had to be stood up and the you know thousands of dispersals and everything that were built and just concrete pad after concrete pad after Nissan hut after <laughs> other building just being put up to, to house all of these air crew and all the bomber fighter and, and interceptor crews. Yeah, I mean, it's it, I, I, we say in the book, um, it's 33% of UK industrial output, construction output during the war is airfields right to the end. And when you think of all the cities that are being bombed and the docks, docks that need repairing and factories that are being bombed at the start, they're still building, they start building these airfields in 1937 as part of the rearmament program. We know war's coming. And, you know, and Ridgewell is one of the better ones that the 381st gets because it's concrete. And it's got it's got proper buildings. It's not a grass strip. It's a proper bomber field. And uh, so Ridgewell is Ridgewell is one of those um, pre-war airfields. So if you're in the three eighty first, you're lucky in that respect. There are there are concrete taxiways and runways. But you know, you mentioned earlier, Doug, about the size of this project. If, if you're at, if you're in Ridgewell before the war, the local village of Yeldham, a few hundred people, a Type A station, two to three thousand people. In a matter of weeks, they arrive yeah. you know, from another country, <laughs> you know, and we tend to think about the aircraft taxi and the going on the raid, sweated out and coming back. But if you talk to the old boys around, live around the area of these airfields, they'll tell you about being a, a young child watching this war go on. And there wasn't time to build fences around these airfields. So they often talk, one of the guys told me about one of the other bases about they'd felled the trees around the perimeter so the aircraft could get in and out, taking off on, on their on their approaches and landings. So him and his friends used to sit on the on the tree trunks watching the aircraft go in and out on raids, watching them coming back. And, you know, at tea time, dusk time, they'd, they'd wander in onto the dispersals <laughs> and the kids, you know, they'd get given chocolate and chewing gum and all that. So there's that, there's that interaction, this porous thing about these airfields and we all think airfield modern barbed wire fence perimeter guards Not there is all. none of that <laughs> there's none of that so um and you can see why there's that that porous thing that society they can go to the pubs they go to the local villages and imagine being in in, in a local town like nearest town to here Bury St edmunds ipswich places like that you know, ipswich grew to have 150 pubs <laughs> because of the volume of allied servicemen from all yeah. nationalities who wanted a night out, you know, and, exactly. and it's it's that impact that happens. And Ridgewell's one of the closest airfields to London. Hence, you get these photographs of Bob Hope, you know, and people are visiting, and it's the showcase if Ira Eco wants to take or do little want to take somewhere to visit. It's it, it Ridgewell's the easiest one to get to, and it and it's got it's got buildings. So it looks, it looks good on film, you know? Exactly. I, I kind of laughed as well that shortly after the 381st arrived, the, you know, broadcast from Axis Sally, welcoming them by name into their senior officers. And then suddenly there's an OPSEC briefing immediately after that. Yeah. So it's, it's one of those, <laughs> We've all been there. <laughs> yeah, it, it's one of those interesting things about being, uh, you know, even though it was in an allied country, uh, there were people listening and there were people, mm. you know, reporting information. And it's, yeah. it's a fascinating as, as we talk about, um, numerous times before the podcast, uh, the the fascinating special relationship between the U.S. and the U.K. and how that's really founded in World War II and moves forward. Um, mm. But it's it's also a lot of the personal interaction that for years later uh, is is really that touchstone between the two countries. 
Yeah, I mean, one of the famous photographs is P forty seven has been loaded, off, unloaded off ships and driven through down the street side on. On the that's in Liverpool, uh, so that, that where I come from, and the biggest US Air Force base in England was Burtonwood, just outside Liverpool, where the sh- all these aircraft came ashore and were assembled, test flown, modified, and then delivered to the, out to their airfields, and that all through the Cold War that stayed. So there's this, there's this. American thread around the area all of the time, you know, and um, certainly here in East Anglia, when when Ica decides where he's going to put his bases, he doesn't go further north where he knows Bomber Command are, because the airspace is going to be too busy, especially at night when the Bomber Command's doing his thing. But I was touched on it earlier, as you you know, an airfield has a heartbeat of its own. It's not just the missions. You've got to do ground runs, air tests. You've got to do fuel convoys coming in. Oh, yeah. You know, maps being delivered, intelligence. It's just people being posted in, posted out, ambulances coming in. There's, imagine that impact of an airfield of that size on a small rural village that didn't see anybody normally before the war, you know. <laughs> and exactly. the noise, you know, and the drama, you know, of, you know, one of the a ground explosion or an air crash or all of that happening around you. So they, 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 they become the fabric of the airbase and the airbase becomes the fabric of the village. Right. Right. It's fascinating. I mean, there's a pub near me called The Dog, and uh, there's no airfield there at the start of the war. And the U.S. Army engineers arrive overnight because the surveys are done at night. How do you do that? I don't know. <laughs> uh, but they, they, they arrive and they're going to start work the next day, and they all pile into the pub, and they drink literally drink it dry. And it's, it's, in, it's in Masters of the Air. It talks about this pub, The Dog, at Grunsborough where they come in, drink all the beer, and in the morning they start building the airfield. The, the, the Americans <laughs> have arrived. They've emptied the, yeah. emptied the pub. Yeah. <laughs> awesome. But I, I think it's a fascinating perspective that most Americans, when they when we see the movies that, that we've grown up on, things like Memphis Bell, we think, oh, whatever. A bunch of airplanes just showed up to England. They started flying missions. Sure, it's it's flying off of a grass airstrip or a concrete paved field. And they forget the the level of logistics that had to go for even yeah. a year to get these places ready and surveyed and paved. And mm. I think one of the interesting t- statistics from the beginning, and you'll remember it better than I was, it was uh, the British contractors returning over an airbase every three days, every four yeah. days, something like that. Um, amazing yeah. when you think about it to make all the all the airfields for these operations. Yeah, and it's it's 33% of British building output in World War II is done on airfields. Right. And that at the same time as the cities are being bombed and we're not – so that all that effort is going onto the airfields rather than rebuilding houses for people to live in. Oh, yeah. Because that's, yeah, that, that's the effort, you yeah. know. Exactly. It's a it's an understanding of the long term logistics of the war and that unfortunately civilian populations comfort and, you know, livelihood was not where it was. It was a pure No uh, and Ridgewell's a great yeah. Ridgewell's a great example because Ridgewell's is the the foundations of Ridgewell is the rubble from London driven out from the blitz houses to build the the foundations for the houses and the runway. Interesting. That's that's a uh that's one of those British utilitarianisms <laughs> that I will, that I will yeah, call yeah. out. That uh, yeah. yeah, it's you, you know when you look at places like Ridgewell and the, and the scale of the building and how it continued to go as more bomb groups were brought in, more diverse kinds of bombers were brought in, mm-hmm. and they kept ex- having to expand the mats and expand yeah. the parking areas. Um, it's it's this never ending logistic cycle that I think at least for a lot of a lot of modern readers or, or people trying to trying to fathom. Uh, 
the the construct, the scale for World War II, we just can't because our only frame of reference is things like the Persian Gulf War, where sure you unloaded a bunch of stuff from ships, but they really weren't building bases from scratch. You were augmenting things that were already in Saudi mm. Arabia or yeah. any one of the modern military operations where it's been mm. augmenting and, and building a little bit, but nothing on the scale of building hundreds of airfields. Um, all across the UK, and then having to build expeditionary airfields in North Africa, having yeah. to, you know, get aircraft there, and then all across Europe. Well, good. So one of the questions I've wanted to ask, uh, reading through the book, there is one continuous voice that comes through, all through all through the yeah. ostensibly, I guess, little over two years uh, mm. of the story. So. Tell me how and why the chaplain is the man of the hour. <laughs> uh, well, you, you're talking about chaplain James Good Brown, who's, who, yes. who writes this tome of a book about everything he sees and hears while he, while he's a chaplain. You know, and anyone who's done military service will remember the chaplain. You know, because the, the, there are no atheists on a battlefield, is that old saying? But, but <laughs> exactly. But also, a chaplain has a license to roam. They get no. The, the, nobody stops a chaplain going anywhere, really, and they they wander around or they deploy. They deploy in most operations, and Good Brown's a, a great example. He even flies on a mission, right? Uh, and he's he's an extraordinary character. And he's with the bomb group right from its formation in the states, all through training, and it comes out. And he, I've walked on the battlefield with Paul and, and um, on the airfield, and the the it's it's rather like the scene out of 12 o'clock high where he goes to, he goes to the disused airfield at the start you wander in there chaplain's office chaplain good's office the old cinema is still there overgrown and you you, you can just, you can get just get in there and have, have a look and see where he was and he it's the conscience of a, of a bomb group you know I, I certainly remember my own time in the military as when i was the regimental sergeant major there was only two or three people who could go in the commanding officer's office and shut the door I say hey I'm <laughs> right. going to tell you something and one of those is the chaplain exactly. yeah and so he could do that and um, but he has this appetite or this this he's driven to record everything he sees and hears good and bad you know and he talks about the he captures the attrition and the tragedy of being in a bomb group and people not making the mission count or just about to make the mission count or the guys who die on their very first mission Right. Or, right. Or, yeah, and I, uh, there's some great bits in, in his account where he talks about one of the ground crew comes in complaining about how tough it is living on the airfield. He doesn't fly on the missions, you know, and he's, like, he's missing his wife. And this is really tough and war's hell. And, and Good Brown just gives him a real roasting and, and sends him back to work. <laughs> Says there's a war on, man. You know, but he, you know, rather like a tank regiment chaplain, when those bombers come back with dead bodies in with wounded guys he's in into those into that wrecked fortress to to, to get the body out and, right. and get the guy and get him and he's the guy who goes with the body to the uk military cemeteries and buries them and and uh, and that was part of the fascinating piece was for someone who you would think that after two years of rotating at four squadron commanders and countless mm-hmm. you know replacements through that he would be so negative and so mm. down in the dumps and, mm. and at least the, your words that, that, or his words to you in your book, you can tell it wears on him, but at the same mm. time, you also get the sense that he understands his duty and that he understands yeah. he's there to, to really continue to keep the morale up and to keep people focused on being yeah. able to do their job. But, but you're right. He, uh, at the, towards the end of the book where there's the mishap on the Isle of Man, there's, you mm. know, the, very it's it's very obvious in his words that you know they 
they really felt like they were done. They felt like the war was over, mm-hmm. and they have this this bookend tragedy, much like at the beginning. Yeah. Um, you know, it, it it wore very heavily on all of them to have to have to go through that. Yeah, because they they kind of expect that there is a risk of being wounded or killed on a mission. But you you just right. touched on the the Caroline incident where the bomb, bomber bomber explodes on the ground. Twenty three people killed, including one Brit civilian who just happens to be cycling past. Right. It's the hugest, biggest incident, ground incident in in the war for the Eighth Air Force, and it's all about the fusing of the bombs and something going wrong. And, and the ground crew, were, as you can imagine, swarming all over the aircraft to get them ready to fly, and right. armed and fueled and all that. And it goes wrong. There's a massive explosion, and all those people, people's bodies are scattered all over the airfield. And he he's there as the chaplain. Everyone looks to him at that point, and he's he's got this this strength to do what he does. And if you you pick up his account. And you pick up John Comer's combat crew, who writes right. it from a, from the mid upper turrets perspective. You know, you get a really good snapshot from the, two different perspectives of, of what's going on in a bomb group somewhere in England at the, at the peak of the, the bombing offensive. Well, I think that's also the the piece that a lot of Americans forget is that, as we talked about, you know, Memphis Bell is kind of a, a bookend previously. Uh, mm. And then everything we see for the Pacific theater and Ola Gay, things like that are the bookend of the opposite. And there's this entire phase in both theaters of heavy bomber action mm. that is full of mishaps, full of shoot downs, full of mm. uh, just things gone awry, uh, flying into mm. terrain, things like that. Yeah. And, and that's the, the difficulty I think for a lot of Americans to grasp is the sheer turnover of those crews. Mm -hmm. And that if you made it to 25 missions, you did rotate home. But at the end of the book, you sit there and you talk about the, the navigators even doing some of the statistics and that 10% of their people rotated home, the rest of them didn't. So it's, it's an interesting thought about just the level of effort put in by the bomber crews of all the nations that were flying, uh, for that time period, for all this the heavy bomber action, and that there's there's a sense of it's it's pure just fatalism that mm. you know your number is going to be up whether it's you you, you don't want it yeah. to be a, a something where it's a mishap you don't want it to be control flight into terrain but everybody knows that the odds are there that they're just not going to make it back but at the same time what was interesting and and Chaplain Brown brought a lot of it back that it was interesting how a little bit of R&R, a little bit of a break, that could bring back these crews that knew they still probably were not going to finish out the war. Yeah. But it would bring back their attitude. And it would bring them back to be able to just take a little bit of a break, not fly, and come back and mm. still perform their jobs. Yeah. And, and, and that thing about being so far from home and then said, hey, guys, you've got four days in London. Go and do whatever you want to do. You know, or even just to go to the local pub, or uh, and that, the impact of that on the local local um, society. I mean, where I live, I, I live in East Anglia, in the middle of all these bases. I can I can literally look out my back garden to see one and drive. I used to work on the next one, and they're all around me. They're everywhere, and and you read about the local towns, you know. And there's the social aspect of it is absolutely fascinating. I mean, Ipswich near me, you know, the the U.S. military police imposed segregation. On the nights out there, certain nights of the week were black only, certain nights were white only, you know, and the Brits didn't like this and there's all oh, that yeah. friction and there's all kinds of other things that go on. But the, the impact of these guys on British society is is huge and, and vice versa. And I think that I th- goes back th- to yeah. 
Yeah, I think it's a, just an interesting point to weigh in on is, is it goes back to why are two British guys writing about American squadrons? But it's, but it's because there's such a, a, a historical impact there. And it's a, it's, it's a, it's a weird dynamic because you try to talk about it with in the modern era without sounding like you're too biased, but it is the common peoples of the, of yeah. the English empire. What's left of the English empire banding yeah. together to fight uh, against, against the Nazi German threat. Yeah. I mean, the whole um, special relationship is another discussion completely, but, but, you know, at the time when the first American aircraft arrived, and there's already been Lend-Lease and all those things before, but you know, it's like, hey, we're, we're not on our own. And, uh, you know, Churchill knew that from, from the first war, you know, as soon as the, the industrial might and the sheer economic power of the U.S. Are, is in, that's it. It's, it's game over. We're going to win anyway, eventually. <laughs> it is. Sadly, it's, it's an attrition yeah, yeah. game at that point. It's, you're, you're not yeah, going to win Germany. <laughs> and Hitler's told before the war, if he hasn't won by 1941, he cannot win. He hasn't got a steel or coal and all the rest of it. And, you know, and if he's, he fights on two fronts, he's lost. But also the real game changer, if the United States enters the war, that's it. Right. Right. Got, well, it, there's just, there's always the fascinating discussion of, you know, why did Hitler declare war on the United States after Pearl Harbor? There was no need to. Why? You know, but that's- Because he's barking mad. Other, <laughs> exactly. <laughs> that's a whole whole other historical discussion. But yeah. uh, you allude to it as the, as the special relationship. It's, it's fascinating. And I think for people who haven't served in the modern US or British militaries, I think a lot of people don't understand how that relationship still exists and, and exists for right or for wrong, you know, for, for richer or for poorer, we end up uh, a a lot of places together. And it's, it is directly a relationship forged in the second world war. And I know my experience in Iraq and Afghanistan, especially in Afghanistan, working with the UK units there in Helmand, it was interesting. Those, those units and and how they spoke of working with the Americans in their history mm-hmm. and that the the very tight uh, ties that we had even even to some of our uh, air counterparts because we flew with you know a lot of the mm-hmm. uh, GR seven GR nine uh, Harrier squadrons um, mm-hmm. and so we there was a there was a long history there with four AC and some of the others that that had mm-hmm. been cooperation uh, over all the years but it's it's that current special relationship is founded in World War Two and it's a it's an interesting level of um, uh, I guess I would say open kimono between two countries that don't necessarily have to work together, you know, mm. are thrust by history into working together and suddenly realizing that while there are UK interests and there are US interests and they may not both align, uh, yeah. winning the wars in both their interests <laughs> and not letting uh, the Germans uh, dominate Europe. Yes, definition of the word allies is quite clear, interesting. You know, <laughs> uh, it's, it's a common thing. You, you're not signed up to do exactly the same thing. You've got to agree that. And the bombing offensive is a microcosm of that. It, it absolutely uh, is. And what I do find interesting at, if, at the start of the book and at the start of the whole formation of the US 8th is Ira Eker talks about, he's an Anglophile, and he talks about the Brits have given us everything we've asked, secret technology, right. airfields, radar expertise you know everything we've asked they've given given it to us of course we would because we need we need the eighth in the war you know and uh, but the you know and a lot of the crews talk about before the p51 and the p47 just getting back to northern france and just seeing the spitfires coming in to to, to cover the retreat back to the uk and then seeing right. the english shores and i mean as i say just to the road from me there are memorials all around the place to aircraft that 
crashed around the airfields around here. And Mendelssohn, where I where I live, near where I live, is um, is uh, American aircraft are, are in the circuit on on finals to land here, and they've been tagged all the way back from Germany by German fight long range fighters and are shot down <laughs> in the circuit. Wow! And at that point, a B seventeen. The guy gets out the ball to it. The gunners all move to the forward end of the aircraft to the radio compartment. The guns aren't manned. You know, and these int- German intruders have tracked yeah, the, the formation all the way back and shoot you down in the circuit. <laughs> That's not, oh, they figure yeah. the gears down, the flaps are down. We're good at this point. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Well, I, I think it's a very different uh, historical perspective than we've grown up in the U.S. because, of course, we're steeped in Civil War history. If you're in Texas, it's, you know, Texas independence history, Mexican-American yeah. war, all those kind of mm-hmm. things. We are not, unless maybe you live in Hawaii or Alaska, uh, mm-hmm. do you get much World War II battlefield history mm-hmm. that you that you even see? Uh, I do know that it's, it's always been fascinating for me. We were talking earlier about flying into Hickam Air Force Base, and you go out to the headquarters buildings, and it still has bullet holes in, mm-hmm. in the concrete of, and fragments from the bombs. Yeah. Uh, so it's it's interesting to see the effects of war and to it's hard i think for americans to understand growing up with memorials on on the roadside Mm. as you're Mm. going to the market um for Mm. actions you know 50 plus 60 years ago um and and growing up knowing that it was not just your country's military there but it was an ally that was you know throwing its full weight into you know keeping you know keeping nazi germany in check yeah, I mean that uh, you're right, and you can walk around Liverpool, Berlin, London, and see blast marks all over that buildings. The airfield I used to work up the hill was where uh, Olds flew from, P fifty ones, and uh, the, the the headquarters building I used to work in. The big pictures of it with the stars and flights, stars and stripes flying overhead, jeeps parked outside, you know, and it was an American fighter group there. Glenn Miller played there, <laughs> you know. So you, you spoke earlier. Why are two British historians, you know, Paul and I? writing this history uh, and it's, it's 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 a tribute and it's a, it's respect for those men and women who came over here you know and fought for freedom and all these great lofty ambitions but you know for the for the uk it shortened the war for us you know it, it stopped our cities being bombed you know and we couldn't have done that without the american effort it would have taken a lot longer for us to do that and yeah. uh, and for those guys to come so far risk so much you know and pay the ultimate price it's quite emotional for us as as brits you know and you, you can i've taken a lot of uh in my post-military career as a, as a battlefield guide i've taken a lot of americans around these airfields and around europe and taking them to the, to normandy and places like that and it, it i i get it it's hugely emotional you know to them or to say take them to the locals so your your grandfather drank in this pub in between missions or, you know, or this is where they went out and this is the airfield and, or even this is the target he bombed. Here we right. are, you know, yeah. this is, or this is where he shot down. It's, it, it's a massive part of history and it, it is tangible if you're here. Right. Quite difficult, as you say, if you, unless you're in Hawaii where it was Pearl Harbor, you, you've not got that, that touchstone yeah, that, to, to feel it. Yeah, not, not at all. And I think as Steve's heard me say, uh, Americans don't travel enough to begin with. So mm. um, the the odds of them going and visiting European battlefields or even uh, airfields and things in the UK mm. is already slim. So it's it's one of those 
things that you realize the the average American won't have an appreciation for the effort, for the sacrifice, uh, for for the camaraderie. And I think that's the thing that, especially for those of us coming from a military background, realizing that that you really didn't care. You know, early years, you you didn't care who was flying that Spitfire. It might have been a Canadian, could have been mm. a, you know a British guy, could have been a, an American <laughs> sneaking yeah, over there to fly yeah. for the for their RAF. You know, you you didn't really care. Um, yeah. But it was that there was an Allied aircraft coming back to escort you home. Mm. Yeah, I mean, uh, Eagle Squadron's another great story, you know, about all that and what they end up all in the fighter groups. So most of them go back to the U.S. Army Air Forces, but it is it it, it really is interwoven into our society and our, and our, our history. And I, I do think in the U.S. we talk about the greatest generation, but they're dying out, uh, and it's going to be the celluloid. You've you mentioned Memphis Bell a few times, I and mean, before that it was Twelve O'clock High, which is an right. all-time classic, and rarely people watch it these days. So have you seen that? And they go, "What's that? Oh, it's in monochrome. I can't possibly watch." Yeah, that. exactly. Like, no, Why would I watch gotta, a black and white movie? Netflix doesn't have uh, anything in black and white. <laughs> yeah, and I'm hoping that I'm hoping that Masters of the Air does what Band of Brothers and Pacific did to this. And triggers interest in a younger generation who will get over here before that whole generation is gone. Right, right. I think, you know, I always have hope that it will. At the same time, I also know Americans that that we are terrible historians in a lot of ways, um, just because we've we are separated by these oceans, and so it, it, we tend to feel mm. very insulated and very insular from um, from the, the history of the rest of the world. But when we do travel and we do see the things that you know, allied service members have done or the places they've been, it, it's super sobering. I, I tell mm. people that the most sobering while at the same time, kind of funny memorial is in the middle of uh, Penang, Malaysia, where I go for mm. work a lot. And it is uh, a tribute to all of the allied service members, you know, fighting to liberate then British Malaya, but it's mm. a five ton or two and a half ton truck being pushed by a couple Malaysian workers with some British Commonwealth soldiers and I think an American air observer or something. And you look at it, you realize it's, it's commemorating an absolutely horrible affair trying to push a truck uphill, (laughs) but it's, the point is it was all through a unified allied effort that, that everything, Mm. whether it was the locals, whether it's the Commonwealth soldiers, whether it was the U S all pitching in to, to get that full, uh, the full wartime effort. Mm. And in a most, to most Americans, it is purely celluloid. It is purely just what they've seen in the movies. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I, I regularly go to Madding, Madding Lee to the U.S. U.S. Cemetery there, you know, and that, that's that's a really sobering place to do. And I take a lot of Brits there to say, "Here's the, you want to see the American sacrifice? Here it is." You know, it's uh, from all from the Coast Guard, the Navy, the Army, the Marines, everybody. They're all in there, you know, and just tell us tell the story well. Absolutely. Well, let's transition a little bit from the book because since you are a nerd like us and you are a war gamer, uh, we we do have to uh, we do have to pin you down on on some of that nerddom and uh, how is it relates to aerial and, and World War II war gaming. Mm. Uh, before we mm. uh, started the podcast, you were uh, sharing that you're getting ready to have uh, a little bit of a gaming event there uh, coming up. Tell us a little bit about what's going to go on. Yeah, I'm very lucky because I live in a in the country. I've got a large outbuilding, so I've got an eight foot by twelve foot table, and I can play. Uh, I can host some pretty big World War Two games and, and occasional other stuff. But I play twenty eight mil, fifteen mil millimeter uh, World War Two ground games. But there's always an air element, you know. I like I do like a typhoon strike or a. <laughs> uh, and my 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 favorite thing because I come from Army Aviation, you you've got to have a spotter aircraft. So you know the the Oster AOP or a Greek Grasshopper or something like that right. to direct the artillery. So 
yeah, you know, it's a group of friends, mainly ex-military who I, I know and uh, who come come over and we, we play at each other's houses. And one of the guys has got a Vietnam table. Uh, nice. Another guy does medieval War of the Roses stuff. You know, I, I host the, big, the bigger games so we can do Italian level stuff. Uh, but uh, and we do play a bit of the board games. You know, I played the PSC Battle of Britain game and a few other right. things. But uh, I do like to have an air component to it. And I just, even though we're all mainly ex-military. It's just fun, and it's it's yeah. good to do, and I, I enjoy the painting as much as I enjoy the playing and, and co- collecting the stuff. So, if I was better at the painting, I would enjoy it. <laughs> I'm not. I haven't been well, painting enough lately. I've been spending yeah. too much time playing and writing and doing everything else. And you do drag stuff over. I mean, I, I find that from from your own experience, but also, you know, you get into an argument about the, what can a fifty cal do or what can't it do, or you know, and all that kind of stuff. Or, and we were having a, a talk about what how would we try and play a, a bomb group game uh, based on the book, you know, and try and how would you replicate a combat box and the inter, interlocking arcs of fire and how would a fighter break in and that kind of, so, you know, I'm hunting around what, what would be the best set of rules to do that and play it because it's such a fascinating thing that, that US doctrine that comes across the Atlantic in 42 and you're like, wow, Norden bomb site loads of machine guns <laughs> just going to punch our way through you know, and, yeah and 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 the RF looking at them shaking their head saying you don't want to do it like that you know you're going to lose loads of guys no no and and it almost stops doesn't it almost they almost think hey we can't sustain this even with well, our industrial might, but, and, yeah. but the true American way of war, we just keep yeah. throwing more men and more material. And yeah, I say yeah. it not as a joke; I'm dead serious. That is yeah. the American way of war, and and the Russian way as well. And the Russian, way. and so it's, it's always yeah. one of those things where you sit there and you say, if you want to understand, you know, why, how America won the Second World War, don't look at how the Sherman tank was built, how the B seventeen no. was built, no. look at the sheer numbers of them. That's that's how it was done. It was not necessarily. Yeah. Any one technological uh, revolution, it was sheer no. numbers and, and reliability. Uh, yeah, people ask me that when I take battlefields tours. Say, you know, what 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 is the thing that? How did the Americans win? And I go, the C forty seven, the Jeep. <laughs> you know, the, you know the, the the production of jerry cans. Yes, you know, just well, just the, the you simple. Laugh. I, I bring way. up the reliability of a Sherman versus a Tiger. If I can Absolutely. drive for fifty Every miles time. and not throw throw a tread, then guess what? I can actually drive to the battle and not Every be a Every time, bunker. yeah, so yeah, and also, and it comes out in the Air Force side as well. The mechanical awareness of the American population and British population versus the German population. I think it's at the start of the war, less than ten percent of Germans can drive. Right, right. Whereas your American farm boy. <laughs> yeah, he he comes straight off a tractor. And he, yeah. he can service it, and if he can service a tractor, he can service a Sherman. And, and know, it's uh, it's so yeah. true because you look at how agrarian Germany was, and mm. uh, it's even in in Hartman's uh, all the mm. writings about him. One of the the guys that we uh, interviewed who wrote uh, Black Tulip that everyone is coming from these super agrarian lifestyles. Yeah going to glider school to figure out how to fly and and no one is is walking in the door with great mechanical knowledge great aeronautical no. knowledge not at all what you're seeing in in some of the other countries and especially you know we forget in the US all of the aviation going on in California and that yeah. so much that we relied on in the early war years was because there was already a mm. large aviation industry there and yeah, once- yeah and the training as well because you know the RAF oh, yeah. and the RCAF they they rely on these American training schools with the good weather and the train, trainer aircraft and the fuel and all of that. And it, it, most of the American, sorry, British 
fighter crews and bomber crews that train over there. So it, it was great. We flew every day, more hours. Yeah. And, you know, and, and the, the training output, the number of flying hours that an American pilot has versus a German pilot in 1944 to 45, the Germans have no chance. Right. A German fighter, an American fighter pilot has four times the flying hours of a, of a German uh, in a better Might have aircraft. made that, that joke to a fairly royal British guy uh, while we were all <laughs> training in Arizona. And I looked at him and said, this all could have been yours, but you raised the price of tea. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I know the guy you're talking about. I used to work with him, yeah. So, <laughs> so uh, yeah, they, y- y'all would come over and train all the time in Arizona because the weather was great. The conditions were what you needed to, to fly. Yeah, yeah. And, uh, yeah, it was it was always fascinating for us how much uh, how much utility our ranges got from non US. Uh, oh, well, you, I mean, are you talking about Watts in Tucson? Uh, well, so Watts is one of them, uh, the whole uh, El Centro uh, and that. Yeah, area, yeah. So before El Centro, I used to I, I used yep. to run it at Watts, and and it was never lost on me. I was there for in Arizona for for four months at a time. The weather, the facilities, the whole thing, you know, and and our guys would get to do forward air control once a year in UK, and out there it was all day, every day until it was like we're tired now. Can you stop sending the A10s? <laughs> okay, we've had enough. That's and a these good guys all, to have. These guys are all going to Helmand and like we want we want a British controller, we want a British controller, we want to do it. Yeah, and it was like oh god, we're so tired. Give us yeah. a break, guys. <laughs> <laughs> so many aircraft. That's a good problem to have, but that, but to to go back to World War II, that's the same good thing that that we had with American flying locations. And you talk about it obviously with the the three eighty first, even though nobody wanted to fly in Texas mm. in you know yeah. Rattlesnake Airfield. Uh, you have beautiful weather, and other than the sandstorms, mm. you have the the ability to to really knock out some good training, and that I think leads to the entire. U.S. Air Force or Army Air Force, and then you know the the Eighth Air Force specifically, uh, being well trained, except for when they transition to Savannah, and and yeah. you don't cover it in the book, but it's so funny for me having lived in in South Carolina near Savannah and finding out how many weather cancellations they had because it was yeah. happy East Coast weather, and every time they yeah. tried to put up a big big practice run, mm. uh, things would cancel because it was rainy, it was overcast, it was great training yeah. for England, but <laughs> but not, uh, not yeah, and, it, and interesting. Well, later on, when you get into into the into the campaign where some bomb groups have formation aircraft with brightly multicolored aircraft to formate, and, and the three eighty first don't because right. their formation flying so good, they've concentrated so much on it, they don't do that, right? Uh, and different methods that different people do at different stages in the war to, to just to to choreograph those aircraft in UK airspace using the minimum fuel so they've got enough fuel to get over to the target to loiter to go around again to get back right uh, and all of the logistics of that and going back to the gaming you you touched on the you know man and resources and what I, I like that in games where national characteristics are built in right because the British mentality in World War Two is shaped by their experience of the Great War in 1418 and it, it it's similar to the Americans in in that it's still not flesh, right? You know, we we can only sustain this many infantry divisions, this many armor divisions. We need to keep our industrial base intact because we're going to fight alone at the start. And you know, we've taken such great casualties in the Great War. We're not going to do that again. So we're right. going to use artillery and air and all that. And it's 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 actually people perceive that to be the American way, but the Brits are even more that way. The Americans say, in the end, the Americans have got a more a more casualty willing to accept more casualties than the Brits, right? right. Uh, and certainly, I play um, uh, uh, Warlord on there, and, and or two fat lardies ain't half, ain't half. Uh, I'm not, not ain't been shot, mum. 
and an American section is 11 figures. Right. A British section is eight. <laughs> and a German section is eight, but the or oh, 10. The Germans have got an, a, a machine, heavy machine gun. The Brits have only got a Bren gun. And the Americans have got more people and a bar. And, yeah, and it's yep. just, you know, well, and it's just the, the sheer firepower that this American section has, you know. That uh, that was always my introduction to that in uh, playing squad leader. That the first time yeah. you got truly heavy firepower units was when the Americans show up in in GI Anvil of victory. Other than that, it's been German engineer units were the only ones that had yeah. that heavy yeah. level of firepower. Uh, and yeah. then all of a sudden, as an American player, you're running around the board with you know more firepower than anyone else, and it's yeah, uh, and a half track with three <laughs> machine guns on it or whatever. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. But that um, going yeah, back to the air, air component, that's that's why you know your B seventeen is bristling with machine guns. It's like okay, we're just going to just gonna go. Yeah, I think that's one of the things. And Steve, I know you you and I have talked about uh, playing the the B seventeen in Blood Red Skies. I think that's one of the tough things is bombers in the game are still they're still too vulnerable, heavy bombers because you just don't get mm. enough of them to have that that wall of lead. Yeah, it's not really. Uh... You know, it's not really like Mike was saying, there's no good way to uh, play that in a game. You know, it's kind of like, how do you best represent this interlocking fire and uh, that sheer sheer numbers of what an American bomber group was bringing to the table, right? Unless you're going to put 50 B-17s on a yeah. four by four table, right? There's, it's <laughs> how do you balance that? in the scope of a game. I've been, I've been really enjoying listening to this. I, you know, a couple notes that were just kicking in my head that always seemed to come up on the ready room, right? That argument of, Oh, the, this was the best plane or this was the best pilots. And I uh, wanted to jump in a couple of times and say that, uh, you know, what Mike touched on is that old saying that quantity is a quality unto itself, right? Like <laughs> exactly. Come on, give us some credit for the industrial might there. Right. But yeah, how, how do you do bombers in a in a in a game where you're representing one plane for well, yeah. one actual aircraft, right? I, th- I think that's the tough part is that like in Blood Red Skies where normally you'll only see one maybe two four-engine bombers on the table and even using the doctrine card like uh interlocking fire, you're you're only changing the odds slightly in the favor of the bombers. It's it's not I don't think it's representing well just the sheer number of of shots that a whole bomber box would have but i think yeah i think that's a real problem and i found that with the obviously i play tabletop games with the ground element or even when i play air games getting that three-dimensional aspect as well the different yeah. heights and oh, the advantage yeah. of height and all that yeah and i found that with the psc battle of britain game it was an it's a good game i enjoy i enjoy playing it and, and it, they've got the operational level right the attrition rate but you haven't got that thing and, and they're all about fighters aren't they really all these games are written from a pilot's perspective <laughs> yes, about fighters. <laughs> that's that's you know, always been our argument about blood red yeah, skies is attacking yeah. craft were kind of an add-on they were they were targets in the first version of the game and then yeah uh, finally became kind of an add-on where you could do things with them in in the uh airstrike uh yeah. rule book that came out and you know they've done a good job integrating them in now but it's just so funny because even even the majority of u.s players they might play a dive bomb mission. They might play a heavy bomber mission. Mm. They don't play the things that probably you and I would find fascinating is the mm. you know, typhoons going out and doing armed reconnaissance, yeah. you know, hunter killer kind of missions. Yeah. Uh, but those scenarios are in the rules. I, you know, Steve, you were laughing at me for suggesting scenario 11. Uh, and for Mike, that's, that's one of the scenarios in blood red skies where 
not only do you have to fight off the opposing side's fighters, you have to go out and search for and find the ground targets, much less even right. actually bomb them. So yeah. while you're while you're bombing ground targets, you're doing you're recce as well. By enemy fighters, yeah, exactly. So see, I want to, I want to, I want AOP. So uh, unarmed recce aircraft, the old spotter aircraft. I love that because that's my the, unit history. And you you yep. read it, you read about these guys. One hundred nines can't shoot them down because they're tight, tight turtles so tight. Yep. There's, and they fly, uh, they fly into air defense boxes deliberately with the, so the M109s will chase them in there, you know, and they get shot down. <laughs> shot down by the, by yeah. So I'll tell yeah. you, Mike, I heard you, I heard you mention the grasshopper earlier. I've have, have a uh, couple hours of tail dragger practice in an L4, and if you were oh, crazy wow. enough to fly that into uh, like a World War II combat area, I mean, yeah. I mean, that's just certifiably insane. I mean, yeah, it, cruising around oh, at 90 knots or whatever, that's just, yeah, uh, that's yeah, 90 knots a of a tailwind, I think. That. Yeah. <laughs> on a good day, yeah. Yeah, on a good yeah, day. Yeah, and, and, and loiter around. I mean, I, I do Anzio a lot. I actually go to the battlefield at Anzio and I've taken aviation and tank units there and they, they, could, they could fly the Oster AOP so low and so slow and the ground's so flat in the train there that they could almost hover over a tank turret commander. On the, on the radio, direct the tank turret to the next target from there. And it's just, you know, wow, you know, that that's real. Not only is that great flying, it's to hop, to be that slow and that static on the battlefield, that's taken a huge risk of being shot down as well. You know, it's um, a phenomenal thing to do in a canvas-powered aircraft in World oh, War Two. insane. I actually, I wish I knew the name of the book off the top of my head. I have a book that was written by some uh, grasshopper pilots and it's, oh my God, to hear the stuff that they talk about in that and just, uh, yeah, I mean, it's certifiably insane, the guys that did that. Yeah, yeah I mean, it's I do, funny I do to think- see that and then then coupled with, uh, like Okinawa, where they were the Marine, uh, mm. you know, VMOs would do the same thing with, with the Grasshopper. And to think about them flying over all that mountainous terrain uh, and getting that low and that slow yeah. and, and trying to direct... Uh, both air and ground fire, yeah. And the size of shells that are flying around, big coming in from naval gunfire support. You know, <laughs> the the size of shells are about the size of their airplane. Yeah, exactly that. Yeah, yeah. They can actually see them. They're so big. Yeah, it's uh, it's quite an amazing thing. Um, and I think that's why. I mean, I might uh, you might convert me to go and have a look at Blood Red Skies because I've sort of gone away from it, thinking there just isn't a game out there that does it does enough to play. You know, so seaborne games I used to play in the past and. Yeah. Sort of dabble thinking about going back to doing some torpedo boat stuff, but um, just for the fun of it all. But the air games and having been in the air environment myself, it just need that bit more, you know. Uh, and um, and fighter games are great and dogfighting it is it's good fun, but it's just, I just want a bit more. Yeah, <laughs> so, you know, the, the funny thing is, I think the reason we like Blood Red Skies is such a, a quick and easy learn and it plays yeah. fast. So, yeah, uh, lose a game in 30 minutes and, <laughs> yeah, pick up and build yeah. another one. Yeah, that's cool. You can respawn and play again. Yeah, it's exactly. Good, yeah. We, yeah. we laugh about that a lot with some of the scenarios because there's sometimes that you'll you'll lose in 15 minutes or less and you'll just get absolutely creamed uh, and that's yeah. fine set it up do something different do a different scenario and it's, it's and, and that's where it's quite clear it is a game because a lot of the scenarios you think oh, i just wouldn't do that i'd yeah. turn away <laughs> yeah and, and a, a, a fighter pilot wouldn't do that unless they had all the odds on their side you know and uh but in a game 
same as any any war game. You think, oh, for the sake of the game, I'm going to crack on. Yeah. You, know, you, you, I'm not going to wait for artillery. I'm not going to wait for infantry. I'll, I'll give it a go. Or, or <laughs> I've taken twenty percent casualties, but I'm still going to fight. You know, like, mm, yeah, yeah. not so much. Yeah, that's, yeah. that's the the best yet also most malign part of Blood Red Skies is the mechanic for uh, as they call them boom chits that they track that. It's a mixture of morale, fuel, mm. damage, mm. all those things all rolled into one. And more often than not, you don't shoot down all the enemy airplanes. You, in fact, yeah. get them to break and, and leave the battlefield by just mm. successive, you know, awarding of boom chits to them by yeah. shooting at them. Uh, or, or through their own buffoonery and causing themselves to... <laughs> yeah, <laughs> to I, and that's that's not too far from the truth when you look at Bomb Group and you look at, uh, you know, we're just waiting for the the early years for the US fires to turn back. Yeah, yeah. You know, and then there's no fires. Then we'll attack. You know, and there's all those edges where they don't know the P47s have got the new drop tanks and a bit more fuel. Or you know, Zemkas is great at this. You know, he reworks his aircraft because he's been involved with the development of the P47 right from the start. Right. And and you know, they fly on for another 15 minutes, and the Germans come storming down, thinking there'll be no fighters and <laughs> Zemkas wolf, wolf packs waiting exactly. for them. And I love things like that. And uh, so, but when they turn away, or you know, the two-engined the JU-88s and the 410s and 210s sit out of range with the the rockets and just fire them into yep. formation. And the 50 well, cals can't reach. Yeah. It's also like the sad inevitability of the night fighters that you're yeah. just flying along on your night bombing route and minding your yeah. own business. And, and you're dead. They roll, yeah, they roll out of yeah. here with the rockets. And yeah. so it's, it's an interesting technological and psychological chase watching the evolution of, of bomber warfare. Uh, yeah, that there's the the interceptors finally trying to do more standoff attacks, you know, um, even you know daytime just deliberate rocket attacks and things like that. But yeah. then the the cat and mouse of you know fighters staying longer, fighters flying at different altitudes, fighters you know yeah. intermixed with bombers, everything to 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 surprise the interceptors and to be where they thought they weren't going to be, and the whole crass mistakes that are made, you know, that RAF fighter command. Could have had the Mustang a lot sooner. Yeah, yeah. I said, and we don't need fighters to go that far. And, and, and U.S. as well. We, we don't need a fighter escort because our bombers have got, got all these guns. Yeah. We're just going <laughs> to fight all these guns. <laughs> we didn't we're call the fortress for nothing. We're, we're, yeah. too, we're too high for flak, and we're, fighters can't get near us. So we, we don't need fighters. The bomber will always get through. Right. Yeah. Uh, so yeah, and endurance. You know, the whole thing about defending your homeland and having that loiter time. You know. Well, we always laughed about, it, especially recently, working together to do uh, the Fulcrum Leader series of Cold War games. That you mm. didn't need a lot of fuel in the MiG twenty one because you weren't going mm. anywhere. You were fighting over your <laughs> yeah. airfields. You're defending against the American B fifty two. So yeah. you know you don't you don't need a great fuel reserve when you're not flying okay. three hundred miles inland to to strike someone else. But the world target. changes, doesn't it? The, the English Electric Lightning was the same thing. Mach two point two out over the North Sea, and then oh, I've just got time to fire my missile. Okay, time to go home. I'm out of fuel. Uh, yeah. No, no yeah. dogfight, and, and the tornado, the F three, not designed to dogfight. Yeah, I don't know how the F three guys did it. I just the concept of flying that far north in the middle of nowhere on yeah. an intercept mission. Uh, yeah, yeah, fascinating. But, we but had it's a weapon, the, it was a missile platform, wasn't it? It wasn't it, designed it was, to dogfight. I was about to say exactly. It was it was not to go out there and find enemy fighters. It was to yeah. go out and find some bombers, lob some missiles, yeah. and go home. So yeah, yeah. just uh, fascinating change in in aerial warfare. Used to tease them a lot and say, you know, you're not really fighter pilots, are you? You know, you don't actually fight anyone. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I'm sure they oh, love to gar- hear that. <laughs> guaranteed a rise. Guaranteed a rise. 
Uh, well, it was interesting because when I went through my F-18 training, we had uh, one of their backseaters as an exchange mm. officer in our F-18 squadron. So for him, it was it was a whole new world because the F-18 was designed as a dogfighter. Yeah. So he was now flying in the back of two-seat F-18s where yeah. um, he'd been just a pure radar intercept officer. And, and yeah, sort of a different world. Aircraft. Yeah, totally different. Different so it was, world, yeah. It was, it was interesting to get his, his perspective on things. And of course, he mm. used to laugh at us for our... 45 minute flights. <laughs> yeah. Like that's not really getting flight time. So mm. yeah, that's, I think the interesting piece when you look at the evolution of, of even bomber attacks and I was going back and reading some Vietnam accounts with B-52s and their first encounters with SAMs and things like that is there's always this arrogance on the bomber side that we, we carry enough, whether it be electronic warfare, guns, mm, armor, yeah. you know, we're, we'll always be good for getting that. They're also, well, you wouldn't go otherwise, large. would you? Yeah, exactly. Yeah, if you, if you told them they they didn't have the capability, you wouldn't launch. But yeah, it's it's so interesting to to hear a little bit of that. And it probably is every every branch of the military. Tankers are probably the same way. You know, no one's going to shoot us with RPGs and you know ATGMs. Um, yeah. But uh, but it's fascinating to see how that very quickly that gets dispelled. And then how does a how does a military force react? What do they do mm. when they get bloodied the first time? And mm. it's suddenly apparent that their tactics, their equipment their techniques that mm. they're not matching up to what the threat is and, yeah. and how do they modify and how do they change? Yeah. Yeah. And if you look at the Northern bomb site, you know, it, it, it was good, but there were better sites out there. Yeah. 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 And that was kept so secret and locked away and just had the self-destruct button on it and all that kind of stuff, you know, <laughs> but the whole thing is built around the Northern bomb site and it's accuracy and, and American bombing doctrine in world war two is precision. We, we, we're, going to hold the moral high ground we're not here to bomb cities and do that kind of thing and harris is out of necessity is the only way we can hit germany in 1940 is to bomb big areas and we're going to do right. it you know right you know, and, and it's yeah yeah i was gonna say it's it's one of those those rationalizations where if your if your technology does not allow you to be precise you still have to hit the enemy and you have yeah. to do damage to the enemy whatever way you know how mm. and while it is unfortunate that the the british tactic was much more against Blood. In, yeah, entire yeah, yeah. entire infrastructure. I, I hate yeah. to call it civilian infrastructure because it was wartime, but mm. the, the entire infrastructure of Germany, it is going to cause more casualties. But let's mm. also, like we said earlier, air quotes about the word precision. When you're bombing mm. a rail yard, you're also leveling all the houses around the rail yeah. yard. So it's it's not uh, precision as we think about it today. Yeah, there's that well-exposed quote of Bomber Harris when he's pulled over by the speed cop in the UK and he said, you need to slow down, sir. You're going to kill somebody. And he says, young man, I kill thousands of people every night. Yeah, yeah, is yeah. his response. That, he knows that, it. That reality, he does, and yeah, yeah. and it's it's an unfortunate state of the war. But I think there's there's a misunderstanding as to the reasoning, and I think a lot of people don't go yeah. back and look at the the tactical capabilities or incapabilities mm. of the British bomber command at that point versus mm. what the Americans brought, and then the Americans saying we're not mm. whether, as you say, it's because of the moral high ground or because they just go. That's not the way we're going to fly because we've put all of our money yeah. into this bomb site. So we're going to make yeah, but, sure that this works. You know, I'm not so sure the, it was moral high ground. I think it was validating the Norden bomb site. Yeah, but the irony, <laughs> the irony is where they first start. They've only got a dozen B-17Cs at the start. Yeah. You know, and 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 it's for bombing ships. Yeah, and there's that great inter inter service wrangling, which as a marine you'll love between the navy and the air force in 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 the states about who defends the coastline. Right. 
and the B-17 is designed primarily to bomb attacking battleships and to be that's yeah. what the precision's for. Yeah, um, for hitting around. And that's how they justify it. And the cost of it is staggering, the cost of, a, of the Northern bombsite. And, and, the, and the B-17 itself is so far ahead of, its, of everything else in the technology that it, it embodies. Right. Um, uh, but then it just becomes a means to an end. And, and then they think every P-17 is going to have a Norden bombsite. And that's not the case when they get further down the stream. So we can't afford to do that. We can't make enough. So you've got lead bomb aimers in, in the bomb group and each squadron saying, when I drop, you all drop. You know, and you've There's got toggle in at the end who are not even <laughs> bomb aimers. They're just, they're just gunners who've been trained to, to pull the right switches yeah. to, to arm well, the bombs and drop them. Yeah. You you hit the nail on the head when you say that it's it's really – it's as we would call it, a self-licking ice cream cone. You yeah, know, it's, it's yeah, to my justify favorite thing. Yeah, all, all, yeah, the, yeah. all the effort that you've put into it, we're going to prove that that tactic works. And whether we're mm. talking about Norden bomb sites and, and B-17s, or if we're talking about uh, heavy EW-equipped B-52s mm. in, in Vietnam, where yeah. we knew that the jamming was okay, but not mm. necessarily as good as it needed to be. And sure enough, the SA-2 still got yeah. through. Uh, and then it did nothing against the fighters. Uh, so mm. when the fighters would still come up at night, they'd find you. So it it was it's an interesting you know use of a technology to the point to validate that worked. But in the process of quote validating it, we proved that we didn't mm. you know necessarily yeah. have as as tight a grasp of the technology as we thought. Mm. Definitely, uh, and how do you play that into a game? You know, the whole night fighter thing is is interesting, uh, and certainly people say to when I talk about my big passion, other big passion is Allied airborne landings in World War Two, and you know why why did they land at daylight in, at, at Arnhem uh, it's because they to fly that close to the German border at night would have been suicide because the German <laughs> fighter arm could be suppressed in daylight with yeah. 1,000 allied fighters but the German night fighters in, in amongst the transport stream would have been, it would have been absolute carnage yeah yeah, yeah, yeah. unarmed exactly. transports flying around with gliders <laughs> behind them. You know, if you're the average JU-88 pilot, you'd have been more than happy or a 110 pilot yeah, to get in amongst that. that very yeah. easy, yeah. Well, so it's let's building. talk briefly about the difference between British and U.S. glider pilots, because you were educating me before the podcast a little bit about mm. that and a little bit about your work on, on those books. Yeah, and it's an interesting thing if, you, if you're a gamer to look at it, because if you're going to do an, a, 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 an allied game, essentially the U.S. Army, also as U.S. Air Force glider pilot, were, were good pilots. They were trained to fly the WACO, the CG4, uh, which is aluminium, alu, sorry, alumin, aluminum, <laughs> aluminum, aluminum framed glider, which is a whole. And when it comes out to economy of scale, perhaps we could talk about that in a minute, about how the Americans go for the glider design concept and the training of glider pilots. But the big thing for the Brits is um, they've, they've watched the Germans in 1940, Eben ML. Churchill comes away and says, hey, I want that. Give me, I want 5,000 airborne troops and I want a glider arm and 18 months to struggle to get it. And, and in the end, they, they build a great glider, the Horsa glider and the Hamilcar glider. But the pilots are it's a big wrangle between the army and the air force. Imagine that. And it's, um, they, 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 um, the army says, no, we want our gliders to be flown by soldiers so that when they get on the battlefield, they'll know where they are and what to do, etc. And this evolves into a total soldier concept where you're a sergeant or a staff sergeant pilot, very few officers in a squadron. You fly along with 28 guys in the back or a Jeep and a six pounder gun. Uh, and you fly into battle. And when you get on the ground, you are capable of, fighting as a, as a formed unit all the pilots gather together and form a battalion 
and you're light infantry. Uh, you know, uh, uh, that sounds like a terrible yeah. idea the United States Marine Corps would come up with. Yeah, yeah, no, it's, it's very Marine Corps. I think Corps that sounds like a to, great idea because as a pilot, I cannot get behind the idea of getting in an airplane without a motor on it. So I think it yeah. sounds like a great idea. <laughs> but, you know, they take 90% casualties on them. Uh, because yeah. they're, they're never really supposed to be used. They're a stopgap, and in Arnhem, no one's getting out. So as NCO pilots, they used to replace all the dead senior NCOs, etc., to fight as individuals on anti-sniping patrols. They're operating anti-tank. If they've flown an anti-tank gun in, they stay with that crew and fight alongside the anti-tank crew. So I did two books on it, and, and it's, it's interesting. If you fast-forward across to the States, when it, and it's a bit like the, the uh, B-17, B-24, program where it's like okay we're gonna we need and it's classic american it's like okay we need a glider force we haven't got one okay we're gonna fight the japanese and we're gonna fight the germans so we need mm, ten thousand gliders okay let's go and build those so you know the weaver aircraft corporation decide we'll, we'll build this glider uh, and the design of the glider is such that uh, hap arnold says i want a glide i want a jeep that can fly such American thinking. I want a Jeep that can fly. <laughs> so the Jeep lands and the wings fall off and we, it drives away. They can't do that. Even the US can't do that in, in, in short notice. So it's, they build a glider that will carry a Jeep or a gun. And it's it's going to be easy to fly, whereas a horse glider's got huge barn door flaps and can land in a very short space on a battlefield. And it carries – it's designed around the infantry platoon so that it, 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 the platoon is the unit of measure that goes in it. Uh, so they'll, they'll, they'll land together and the American glider is designed around this one Jeep and one gun or one section or half a platoon. So they're not in yeah. the same aircraft. So a, this is the problem. The gun and the Jeep aren't in the same aircraft. The chances of two gliders landing in the same field, particularly in the dark, zero. zero. <laughs> but the original concept was that the C-47 would pull two at a time in a staggered tow. But that there were never enough C forty sevens or the range that shortened the range. So you get this thing of what you end up with is a glider that's very easy to fly with spoilers instead of um, instead of flaps, uh, and it's easy to land as well. So it's it's great to land. It's very easy to learn to fly in a short space of time. I'm thinking about pipeline time and generating all these pilots, and um, that's good on a nice warm airfield in the states. Not good if you're trying to land on a on a hot LZ where you're being fired at. When you want to get down yeah. really fast, and it doesn't get down very fast. So <laughs> there's all kinds of issues around. It, it turns out to be a great glider for special forces and small, compact partisan resupply missions in Yugoslavia, which is what the Brits use it for, uh, and things like that. But it's it's so different. You can put a jeep in it. You hook a cable to the jeep when it's loaded. Once it lands, the pilots jump out, unhook some he- plugs, and the jeep driver drives out and the cable pulls open the nose of the aircraft like a like yep. a space mission and, yep. and out you go and then you unhook it and drive away <laughs> but you know there's thousands of these things but the big problem is is the pilots and, and gavin i found a letter when i did the arnhem book and um gavin later wrote a letter after mark garden saying all of these pilots you gave me these these air force pilots flying gliders some of them were really helpful they wanted to fight, but they went off and fought their own war. They didn't fight in a disciplined unit, so they got in the way. <laughs> Others of them just sat in their blankets and waited to be picked up because that's what they'd been told they had to do. Yep. Uh, Others of them went off the track and started looting and doing things. They just didn't have a role. Right. And it's just an interesting contrasting concept where it's about how quickly can the U.S. grow a capability. Yeah, and you mentioned versus, the Sherman tank earlier. It's yeah. the same thing. It's like, okay, it's economy of scale. It's mass. We can do this. It's There's a pipeline. Just keep churning it out, churning it out. 
And yeah, you, you think, see that. I think there's a, a motto almost for the for the American military is that we'll devise something, then we'll figure out its battlefield role. So yeah, yeah. We'll buy ten thousand of them, then we'll figure out how we're going to yeah. use them. Yeah. Now. Well, you've only got to look downstream at the anniversary now of the Ardennes offensive, where the Germans launched the Ardennes offensive, and they've lost the capability. They try and use gliders and paratroops, yeah. and their transport crews can't do it anymore. Most of the paratroops have never jumped before. It's a scattered, useless drop. They, they've dropped in the wrong place in poor weather, and they've lost so many transport aircraft on the Russian front. And the, you know the, the old Ju-52 from Where Eagles there. What a what an iconic aircraft, and they haven't got the crews to do it anymore. It's uh, yeah, they've lost it. Well, we we had an interesting discussion, me and uh, and a couple other guys that were talking about the the sad reality of the Ardennes and the, and the Battle of the Bulge was it wouldn't have mattered whether Allied troops were a speed bump there or not. The Germans mm. just could not have exploited success no. um, because they just didn't have the men, they didn't have the fuel reserves, the ammunition. Okay. The you know it was it, it was one of those points where that was their second to the last gasp, uh, mm. and it really it, it was still going to all be for naught. Um, yeah, and it's a false lesson because the only reason they got away with it in 1940 was because French air reconnaissance was so bad. Yeah, <laughs> the French knew it was there. They 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 saw them all there in 1940, and they were stacked up, and it was a huge bottleneck. And the French chain of command could not cope with the realization of what they'd found, or or flex to to use air or or artillery to destroy or disrupt that. Right. Uh, you know, I mean, you're talking about a French army in 1940 with where the, the senior commander's headquarters for the whole like Sacker equivalent right. has one telephone. <laughs> Because it's vulgar, they don't want a telephone in the headquarters. <laughs> we had uh, all that carrier pigeon <laughs> messenger. And, and, and if you want to do an air game, try doing the, the uh, British RAF in 1940, trying to bomb the Albert Canal with the Ferry Battle Bomber. Yeah. It's a bit like oh, trying to use the Devastator, you know, <laughs> yeah. in the early Pacific War. It, it's, I think it's I actually have duck. three unpainted ferry battles here somewhere. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I, I picked well, there's a lot of Victoria Crosses one flying those in 1940 because it it's suicide. Yeah, complete yeah. suicide to fly those against well, anti-aircraft alone. Yeah, it's it's interesting. We were, I think we at one point we're talking about, uh, um, I know we talked about the ferry battle and a couple other ones, and you you try to put them into a game that's like Blood Red Skies. It's about fighters, and you're like, how do I even put them in the game? It's just it's not even fair to them, you know. But it's, it's that uh, variable you were talking about earlier. Where why are the fighters there? Would yeah. the fighters have known they were there? Because there's no radar at that point. It's exactly. almost World War S. Yes, unless you're in a in a cap overhead of a, a bridge or something, you know. Why would you? What's the chances of you finding those aircraft? Yeah, I, th- I think there was a point where someone brought up uh, where I think it was a ferry Fulmar had actually shot yeah. down uh, a couple aircraft. And we're like, how did that happen? Did they blunder yeah. in front of the Fulmar? Yeah. <laughs> you know what, what, was, yeah, what yeah. happened? And some of the but, um, some of the first 109s shot down over the channel were shot down by an Avro Anson. Yeah. Which has got one Lewis machine gun at the back, yeah. and one—it's—it's—it's a, it's a, it's a navigator training aircraft. Yeah, but the pilot was so good he could turn—he turned the circles, and the 109 pilots weren't that experienced, so he shoots them down. It's a gunnery training aircraft, so obviously the instructor was on in the turret that day. But you know, it's uh, yeah, yeah. Well, but I think that's why because it's art—it's artificial in the game because you want to play the game, right? Unless you're playing a counter game, which you mentioned earlier, where it's like, okay, yeah, so you didn't turn up. It's like, I get through, I hit the target, but that's boring, isn't it? Yeah, that's not, yeah. not near as much fun. 
No. We've even talked about with with some of the uh, Blood Red Skies aces because it really emphasizes high skill pilots at, at certain phases mm. of the game. We've introduced some that were from reconnaissance aircraft because you even you know go back to uh, the Mediterranean theater and you have guys flying Maryland's and flying yeah, war, war, uh, F5s. Yeah, from Malta. And, yeah. and how yeah. you go, Warby, how did Warby become an ace? How is this possible yeah. in, a, yeah. in a Maryland? You know, but yeah, yeah so it's it's uh, quite fascinating the the different well, aircraft and the, the crews that took them to the to those levels i mean that's a great story the the malta story i mean if you want to do an air battle what malta i've, I've done malta what been to malta many times and looked at that and the airfields and that's battle of britain on steroids you know yeah. it's really interesting to do yeah, all of uh, my UK counterparts get so mad because I'm really not a Battle of Britain aficionado, but mm. the Battle of Malta is, is yeah. amazing to me. So yeah. I, I, I enjoy studying that. And we've we've gamed that a couple times and played out large Blood Red Skies scenarios with it. And it's, it's yeah, I mean, a great one. I don't know if you do it. For me. I don't know if it's a scenario. Is when the when the wasp or the hornet brings in the resupply of Spitfires and the Germans destroy them all on the ground. Yeah. Yeah. Not, yeah, before they, before they could turn around. Talk about depressing. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. You've landed them all. We we uh, we, we were talking, uh, one of the guys that didn't make it on tonight, Brett, he and I were going through and going through all the different missions and you see, okay, now we're up to 30 Spitfires and now we're down to five Spitfires. Yeah. And now, yeah. you know, as soon as you get things, you know, on the island, you either get them shot yeah. down or damaged on the ground. And yeah, sense. and how they, how they rectify that. That's inept command, you know. And U.S. Navy's risked one of its biggest carriers along the Mediterranean to deliver these aircraft to you and you just waste them you know it's yeah. just uh, criminal <laughs> absolutely criminal and church has to go to roosevelt said hey you know that carrier lent us could you could you just uh, do another run you know we'd like exactly. this. yeah it's um you know you can do faith open charity the, gla- the gladiators and all of that it's um, let's not speak of the gladiators i hate biplanes <laughs> <laughs> i think i told someone i'm like i will never play those in blood red skies i refuse to fly a biplane nah you got uh, a few henschels <laughs> and gladiators and cr-42s exactly it's uh, uh really good to do i mean i i yeah any any of those are, are worth a go but malta itself or, or a pedestal convoy game mm-hmm. the uh, catapult aircraft things like that so um, steve sounds like we do. need to do that for uh adepticon in march sounds like we have our marching orders go back to malta again oh man i mean we can never have too much malta right there's tons of content there yeah, there is. There's always, always for an air game. Yeah, so. and you get the Italians in there as well. Who sometimes good, sometimes not. Yeah, yeah it's uh, <laughs> often not. You get all that, but nice aircraft, oh, color yeah. schemes. Oh, yeah. Well, awesome. Well, we've been talking for a while, so let's wrap this up, mm. uh, Mike. It's it's been you know super enjoyable to talk to you both about wargaming and about bomb group, uh, and uh, and to talk about just the uh, the stories of the crews and and how you guys kind of put together the the whole narrative and the style of the book. Mm. Uh, Steve, any questions in closing that you've got uh, for Mike? Man, I just want to uh, I just want to say about this book. So I had the pleasure of going to the Eighth uh, Air Force Museum down there in Savannah, and uh, it was awesome to see it. And I get a lot of crap because I don't read a lot of history books and everything. That's because they're usually boring. Okay, that's why I don't read them because I don't want to read a textbook. This book is just the way it's written. And the way it tells the actual stories of what's going on, it like really is like you're like reading a movie. And to think that these stories are all like true and Mm. actually researched and and such. I mean, it's it's just a phenomenal book. So if you're looking for just a really entertaining book, uh, yeah, I've really enjoyed the parts of it. 
that I've read and I, I can't wait to go back and, and read through this whole thing. I've really, really enjoyed it a lot. Wow. Well, thanks, Steve. Maybe you could put that on Amazon. That'd be great. Yeah. And an, I mean, an endorsement, an endorsement from a book for me, from the people who listen to this podcast. I mean, if everybody yeah. doesn't run out and grab it, I mean, I'm sure yeah. most of our listeners don't even think I can read. So the fact that I'm endorsing your book is like huge. Trust me. Yeah. Thank you very much. I mean, Paul, uh, you know, we've talked, you've talked to me tonight, Paul Bingley, you know, he, he deserves a huge amount of credit for that. He's, you know, he lives, sleeps, breathes the 381st, you know, and um, every time I, I walk that field with him or we talk about it, we, we, we both learn stuff from each other all the time. And that's that's the joy of it. And that's what Wargaming does as well. You know, it gets you, provokes you to talk about these things. And, and, and um, it is a way of keeping the whole thing alive, isn't it? You know, it's not just on Netflix or wherever. It's, um, it's another dimension to it. And, um, you know, I mean, what I say, I'm not. Uh, you, you, you made the point. Uh, I'm closing now. I know uh, about British uh, Anglo-UK relations. It's um, it, every town around here where I live, and every village has got a, a US memorial. You know, go to Lavenham or places like that. There's an airfield there, an aircraft control tower. Most of museums, summer houses, they've all got. You know, my my in Lavenham, there's a memorial to the to the bomb group, and Barry St Edmunds, where I am, there's Ruffham Airfield. They've all got the memorials, and they nestle in along, on the wall alongside the memorials from Helmand, from our own guys, and World War Two and World War One. So it's really, it really is an important facet of British heritage. is is an appreciation, and it's not just the Eighth Air Force; it's the Ninth Air Force as well, and all the others. And also, of course, it's not just the P seventeen. We have to mention the B twenty four crews and the P fifty one and the P forty sevens and ne- nearby here at Watersham, the P thirty eights. Uh, it's, and all the other bits that it's just a huge it's still here you can if you're an American and you come to UK I mean I'm, I'm one hour from Duxford from the American Eighth Air Force sorry the American Air Force Hall which has got everything in there from B-52 B-17 all that stuff and it's such an impressive testimony to the American contribution to you know liberating Europe and defending the UK. It's, it, it, and, and this book, you said to me at the start, why have you two Brits written this book? And that's it. That's what it's about. You know, we did our own bit and we're, I'm, we're both immensely proud of Bomber Command and you know, all the controversy around that. I don't care about it. It's They did what they had to do. You know, I'm, I'm a soldier, aviator myself. We really do care, but you know, we, we never lose sight of the the B-17, the Sherman, and all those other things, but the guys and women who came across here and put them into the field and, and did what they did. So big thank you to your U.S. listeners for that from UK, and a Merry Christmas. Absolutely. We, we really uh, don't want to lose sight of that fact that the uh, the U.S.-U.K. relations and the, the special relationship there, as much as Steve will tell you inside the uh, the online ready room group that does Blood Reds Guys, the U.K. and U.S. factions may may argue and fight a lot. <laughs> But That's was cool. the Spitfire better uh, than the P fifty one or whatever, whatever uh, the argument of the day is? But um, we can't forget that that special relationship that did bring the Allies uh, to victory in World War Two. And so, thank you for writing the book. Thank yeah. you for bringing a lot of that history to light. I really, really enjoyed yeah. reading it. Thank you. And it's the P fifty one. It's better aircraft, by the way. By long <laughs> thank you. You will now be disowned <laughs> by everybody who's a, a British citizen inside the ready room. Somebody over in England. It's official. Thank you. Yeah, well, a spit a Spitfire is not going to get to Berlin till it's in Germany, is it? It's, yeah, pretty yeah. much. <laughs> we'll truck it there the game first. changer. It Although is, it's got it a British is. engine and it's a British design, but you know that's and another the, discussion. That's why I always I always go back and say it's it's a partnership. We would not yeah, have yeah. done it without the engine. So without the Merlin, we would have figured it out eventually. 
Come on. Yeah. <laughs> About like 1950, <laughs> we would have figured it out. <laughs> like you joined the war eventually. I get it. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. It would have been uh, a lot of lack of American ingenuity and beating it with a bigger hammer. Uh, yeah. But awesome. Well, thanks, Mike. I appreciate it. 